Hey guys, this is Psych Teacher John. So we're back to actual social psych. Um, sorry, I'm a little bit congested today, so hopefully you can bear with me. But first topic on the list is gonna be conformity. Actually, that's the main topic for this entire session. Just so we can get into this, let's first talk about some background stuff. So, you know, we have a social group, right? Uh, humans kind of are hardwired to be social animals. Because let, let's face it, often nature, we're kind of wussies. So to handle bears, to handle uh, wolves, all that sort of thing, we gotta work in groups. So we're hardwired to be social, a huge component that's being able to empathize with other people, understand how they feel. So when you empathize, you can connect better and, you know, have better social interactions, et cetera, et cetera. So in that vein, it makes sense that, you know, you see this phenomenon called social contagion. So what's social contagion? That's basically the setup where, you know, if someone in a group, right, starts to yawn, then the others start to yawn. If someone in a group behaves a certain way, you start to mimic or imitate their behaviors, okay? It kind of makes sense because the evolutionary thinking is, is that when someone does something and you imitate them, it's sort of connected to you trying to empathize with them or understand how they feel, okay? Supposedly. So not everybody agrees on that, but that's definitely one slant. How is this evidence in experiments? So you have these experiments, right, where people will come in, they actually have them working these different jobs, and they would have a confederate, someone working for the experimenter. They would pretend to be a worker working along next to them. And the worker would do things like either A, touch their face, or B, like tap their toes or something. And so, you know, as you'd expect, in the cases where the confederate was touching their face, the participant touched their face more, you know, as they were doing their job. In the versions where the confederate is tapping the floor, the participant would also tap the floor more. So you saw this sort of mimicry, right? Where someone would do it, and the other person would basically imitate that behavior, okay? So already you can see the direction we're going. Um, a general term here for that effect where you tend to copy or behave like people around you, that's the chameleon effect. Okay. So for the chameleon effect, you can see it in expressions, you can even see it in opinions, you can even see it in things like speech. So you're hanging out with your group, your posse, right? And then you end up talking like them, sounding like them. And that doesn't just have to be close friends. It could be in sort of any social group, any social setting. An effect related to this is kind of pertinent to social media and all that is, of course, positive hurting. So positive hurting is where one person writes a positive view about something and basically then more people inclined to do the same. They mimic that behavior. So you see one positive review pop up and then you start to see more of them. Obviously though, when we talk about groups, when we talk about conformity, we should talk about social norms. So social norms, very briefly, a social norm is a rule for that particular group or culture, okay? So literally they could be laws. Uh, they could be, you know, things that aren't strictly laws, but it's kind of understood, expected behavior, right? So the social rules you kind of abide by. So in the US, for example, if you go to a restaurant or whatever, you know, you're kind of expected to tip the waiter or waitress. Okay, so things like that. So let's move from this to, of course, the most famous experiment of all time, and that's got to be really Ash's uh, experiment. So what he did was he took a bunch of college students. He had um, a group of people working for him, and the college student would be among them, and the student had no idea what was going on, and they would say, okay, I'm going to show you a bunch of pictures of lines. Point to which line you think is the longest or the shortest or whatever. Okay, so they would do this, and in the first few trials, it's really easy. The one line would obviously be longer, let's say line A, everybody would agree, life would be great. But then you do a separate round. And in that separate round, what would happen is you would show, you know, line A is clearly longer than line B. But then everybody would vote for line B, except for the participant. So now the participant had to make a choice. Do you vote for what you think is obviously true, it's line A? Or do you somehow doubt yourself and maybe vote for line B? Of course, most of the time, people stuck to their guns. They kind of said, okay, it's definitely still line A. Line A is the longest, even though no one agrees with me. But a decent percentage of the time, people actually went with the group. Or 
um, quite often they would hesitate and falter and go like, okay, should I say A, should I say B, whatever. So when they were kind of interviewed afterwards, you know, in some cases what was happening is because the group all said B, the person that knew it was A would hesitate because they're like, wait a minute, why is everyone saying B? Am I misseeing this? Am I looking at this from a different angle? Uh, is it the case that I mis misheard the instructions? Like, what is going on? So they literally doubted themselves, okay? Another option, which was uh, pursued in other experiments, was something like, maybe they still believed that line A was definitely the longest. They didn't really doubt themselves at all, but they didn't want to go against the crowd because they didn't want the negative social impact of going against the group, okay? So that's definitely another theme that came up. Uh, and studies have kind of shown that both factors, right, both factors contribute, or it's possible both factors contribute, okay? So when we think about this stuff, when we think about conformity then, right, we know that instinctively you kind of want to go along with the group. Is there a benefit to that? Sure, sometimes a group is privy to more information. If a lot of people are doing it, it can't be bad, right? Uh, also, there are the social repercussions. You don't want everyone in the group disliking you or thinking you're the oddball, okay? You know, and there's a lot of debate back and forth, but things to know, when are you more likely to conform? Well, one, obviously, it depends on the situation, it depends on you, but it also depends on culture, right? Individualist cultures like the US, uh, you're encouraged to kind of speak your mind, to stand out. In collectivist cultures, like for example in Japan, it's this theme of like, no, you kind of want to go with the group. You want to make life you know, good for everyone else, okay? So that has an impact. Another thing is, uh, incompetence or insecurity. So if in a particular task you don't feel that comfortable, then of course, you know, you're more likely to say, hey, maybe everyone else knows what they're doing. Maybe everyone else, everyone else is getting it right. Okay. One thing that's unique and interesting though is unanimity. So they ran other versions where when everybody else agreed that B was the longest line, even though you clearly thought it was A, right? But what ended up happening is they had one dissenter who would say, no, 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 it's definitely line A. So in these experiments, what was kind of consistently true was people were much more likely to go against the group if at least one person was going against the group already, okay? So now you have this issue because some people said, well, that's because you got a buddy on your side agreeing, agreeing that line A is the best. But then you had other people saying, mm, maybe it's just because they're not all unanimous. Not necessarily that you have a buddy backing you up. So they ran another experiment in which what they did was they actually had someone go against the group but they kind of went opposite to what you did. So if you had line A, B, and C, and you thought line A was the longest, and line B is what everyone's voting for, the dissenter would go with line C, the shortest line, okay? And it turned out, again, similar results. So even though that person was voicing opinion very different from yours, because they went against the group, it seemed to free you up. So you were more likely to go against the crowd, okay? So obviously we don't advocate totalitarian regimes or anything like that, but I'm saying that this sort of study kind of lends credence to this idea of like you have certain governments that don't want anyone speaking out because when you have unanimity then it's hard to go against the crowd but if someone as soon as someone speaks out even if they have different reasons right so another thing that comes along with conformity and how to behave if we go back to the whole norm thing right is that social influence can affect how you behave right obviously conformity is an example of that so normative social influence is basically when that social influence tells you how to behave. So for example, literally norms, think norms in society, um, think conforming with your group, it's telling you how to behave, what to do, right? As opposed to informational social influence. So that is social influence where, again, the herd has a certain opinion, so you tend to accept it and go with it. So you're gaining information from what the group believes. So for example, if we're checking out a coffee shop, and I've never been there, 
but you know, I have a bunch of friends that go there. And some are like, I don't like it, but the vast majority say, oh, it's not a bad place to go. That's not actually telling me how to behave necessarily, but it gives me information and I trust the group in a way. So I go, okay, all right, I'll believe that. I think the coffee shop's not bad or might not be bad. Obviously that could lead to action. So I could say later on, I'll go, I'll go check it out. Why not? It's worth my time. But the point here is that that social influence is giving you information and you're accepting it as opposed to telling you what to do and you going along with it. Okay. Before we leave this topic conformity though, I want to talk briefly about um, social comparison because that goes along with this whole thing. Now social comparison is pretty broad. It could be like, how do your accomplishments rank up to like those of other people? And you literally compare yourself, right? But so social comparison is kind of an umbrella topic. But if you look at things like social referencing, so social referencing is the phenomenon where to judge whether an action's appropriate or inappropriate, you look or you refer to what everyone else is doing, okay? Uh, an example of this can actually be with little kids. So if the little kid's moving along and, you know, and sees a situation, like it's trying to grab a toy, but it has to walk over this desk or whatever, and it's wondering, should I do this or should I not? Is this dangerous or is it not? You know, then they kind of look to the caregiver. So you're looking, you're socially referencing the caregiver. So the caregiver being a reference group looks at you, they smile, you're like, okay, no problem, I'll go get it. If they frown, you're kind of like, okay, I should back off, I should be careful, okay? And there have been experiments that have been done to this effect. The recap really quickly here, since we're coming off of conformity, social referencing, you're looking at a reference group to tell you what behavior is appropriate, okay? So now, um, before we leave this topic, I think one more thing we can add here is persuasion. So definitely, you know, relevant since we're talking about conformity. But in standards psych, they talk about two major pathways to persuasion. One is called the central route to persuasion, and the other is the peripheral route. So the way I kind of think of it is the central route is really about the message. Generally, you engage the central route when it's important to you and you're invested in it. So the topic is important to you and it's meaningful, so you're going to basically sit there and really think about it. So in the central route, you pay attention to the message. Of course, the messenger can matter, but really the message is the central theme. You're thinking about it, you're actively processing it, you know, going over multiple times, going, okay, wait, it works this way, this is what they mean, this is what they're trying to say. So the more you mentally elaborate, the better you tend to retain things. So that's something from memory, but it's called the elaboration likelihood model. If you are interested in that topic, I, we can go into it. We could definitely do a session on memory or maybe multiple sessions. But the central route, right? You're invested in it, you're engaged in it because it's meaningful to you. You're paying attention to the content, to what it's actually saying. You're actively processing things. You're mentally elaborating a lot on it. And so it's more likely that you'll retain this for the long term, okay? Whereas in the peripheral route, the way I like to think of the peripheral route is kind of the following. You're busy doing something. You're working, you're studying, whatever. And the TV's on in the background. You really don't care about the message. Like some commercial comes up and you don't care about the commercial. You're not invested in the commercial. It's not important to you, right? But it's there. So do you kind of perk up and pay attention to it? Does it make you go buy that cereal or does it not? Like how does that work? In the peripheral route, the message is not so important to you. So you tend not to focus or think deeply about it. In fact, what you'll probably notice more are things like the messenger, the way it's presented, the imagery, etc. The way I like to think about this is the messenger, but not necessarily the message, at least not initially because you don't care about the message, but the peripheral stuff, like who's delivering it? Is it your favorite celeb? Is it not? Um, is it evoking a lot of emotion? You know, those sorts of things matter. So again, core example to keep in your head, it's literally a commercial. So if there's a commercial in the background, you don't care about that commercial. But if your favorite celeb pops up and it's like, I use this all the time, you're more likely to be like, okay, well, maybe I'll check it out. 
And that's basically what I wanted to cover with persuasion, the central route as opposed to the peripheral route. So we should talk briefly about the general psych guidelines for how to be persuasive. And of course, these principles are not going to magically make you persuasive. Okay, But generally, they find that these web, some methods work better than others on average. So for example, things not to do. Don't argue loudly. But now, I'm not saying you're debating and there's an audience. I'm saying if you're trying to persuade another individual, don't just yell at them. Clearly, that, that seems to go with common sense, right? If you're just screaming at them, they're probably not going to be convinced. But another thing is, don't make them feel bad about themselves. I mean, you're not going to have any positive connection. It's going to be harder for them to like see your point of view because you've just insulted them, right? And don't bore them. If you just rattle off a bunch of facts, they will tune out, okay? So what are possible things to do? One is appeal to the, the good side of them, their admirable motives. So when you're talking about something, you could literally say like, oh, this is a great humanitarian effort, and I know you love helping people, right? So we should definitely work on this together. One is you're only appealing to something they want to do. It's a motive for them, but also you're, you're appealing to something that makes them feel better about themselves, right? It's a, it's a good motive. And along those lines, something probably even more powerful is identifying common goals. If you're talking to someone and trying to persuade them, show them how they already have this goal in mind and what you're presenting actually goes along with them. So it's like, hey, both of us want to improve this, right? We want to be more efficient. We want to work as a team. I think this is the way to do it. So you're not fighting them. You're literally saying, hey, these are the things that you already want to do. In fact, we both want to do them. So maybe this way will work for us. It'll get us there, okay? As opposed to something where we were just butting heads. And then a third thing, I kind of think of this as sort of the engagement factor. Um, if when you're trying to persuade them, you're making your points and they're vivid, either literally visually vivid or like mentally, emotionally vivid, and you're also engaging them in a way that makes them restate the point you're trying to make. It's one thing for me to say, we should definitely support the sort of equal rights uh, legislation. It's an entirely different thing when you hear it, you process it, and you say it. So it's very much more powerful when you actually repeat and go, yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. We should definitely support equal rights, for sure, right? So, so having them engage in the conversation and restating what you're saying only helps them to believe that they're on your side. And then the final thing is really um, to repeat. So, you know, we'll try to tie this all together, but apparently the more times you hear something, the more likely you are to believe it, okay, or be persuaded by it, even though you might think it's nonsense, at least in the beginning, okay? So you might be like, why, why is that? Why would just repeating something make it more powerful? So I'll give you um, one of my takes on this. They've shown that when people communicate, right, sometimes you really want to communicate, be invested, pay attention, etc. But other times you're just busy. So you don't have it all the time in the world to process everything. So you come up with these heuristics, these rules of thumb, these shortcuts that will make you more efficient. And so in a lot of situations, these shortcuts can be really handy. As we'll see later on, sometimes they become negative, right? like lead to things like bad schemas, stereotyping, etc. But in this context, it might be the case that, okay, if I'm not really paying attention to something, it doesn't really, it's not that important to me. I know in general that probably if I have a bunch of different sources saying the same thing, maybe somehow that's, it's more likely to be true, right? Because if, there was, if that was something inherently false, then maybe somebody might say it, but other people might contradict it, or I wouldn't hear it being spouted all that often. So the more times you hear something, maybe in some sense, the more likely it is to be true. That's why people keep bringing it up or saying that, oh yeah, here's a fact you should know. Obviously this has flaws and just repeating over and over again something that someone's not gonna convince them, right? But as general rules of thumb, if the message is vivid, if you engage them into restating it, and if you repeat it, you're more likely to be convincing. Yeah, hopefully that helped and uh, I'll see you guys soon.